Om Ajnanati Mirandasya Jnananjana Sharakaya Chakshurunyanitam Jenatasmai Shri Gurave Namaha Nama Shishnamanumapi Sachiputram Matrasarupam Rupam Tasyagrajam Urupurim Maturim Goshtavatim Radha Kundam Giribaram Oradika Madhavasam Prapto yasya pratita kripaya shri gurum tamnato smi Shri Gauri Vaishnav Guru Parampara ki jai Hari Nam Prabhu ki jai Shri Maad Bhagavad Gita ki jai Shri Shri Krishna Arjun ki jai Vahul Premanandi Hari Bol We're reading from Bhagavad Gita, its feeling and philosophy And in our discussions we reached the end of the second chapter and what we found at the end of the second chapter was an explanation of the nature, character of the Sita-pragya, enlightened person, the Krishna-conscious person, the person in Samadhi. And it has been shown and brought out in our discussion that such a person is the prema bhakta in the full sense of what Krishna is speaking about when he speaks about samadhi. He explained along these lines. He deprecated the path of jnana slightly also. He gave it a, a poke. Even a wise man, he said, even one of the senses that get distracted can take away the spiritual practice of a wise man. The subtle implication being, oh, devotion is better. Gives positive engagement for all of our senses, and again, marg is very difficult in comparison. He talked about how to know such a person in this world by way of explaining that their night is ordinary person's day. And our day is like a night the darkest abyss for them, what we are awake to, concerned about, that is the darkness of ignorance to such persons, and what we are asleep to, that is the life for them. And we explained the fullest expression of this comes to Braj Bhakti. In the Braj, this is the Paro Dharma. Sabai Pumsam Paro Dharma Yato Bhakti Rhoksaje. Ahaituki. Aprotiyata, Jajatma, Samprasidati. Sutta Goswami answered Shonaka's question in first chapter, first canto, Srimad Bhagavatam. Number of questions, one of which was, what is the best occupation for human society? And he answered in this way, Savai Pumsa Parodharma. For a human society, the Parodharma is Bhaktir Adhoksaje, devotion. Adhoksaja. Adhoksaja means beyond our approach. If God wants us to know about Him, we can know. Otherwise, it is not possible. If the Absolute exercises Himself in relation to us, out of His kripa, kindness, through revelation, then real knowing is possible. Otherwise, by any ascending method of knowing, whatever the strength of our senses may be, the power of our mind and intellect, disciplines of yoga and so forth, it's all fruitless for comprehensive knowing. And in one stroke, if he wants us to know everything, 
there's nothing we will not know. He is seen as he wants to be seen, when he wants to be seen. That doesn't mean we will sit and wait, <laughs> but he has told through sadhus, scripture and so forth, that he would like to see us all. And we should position ourselves such that he will be inclined to reveal himself. We are moving in an opposite way of attracting him. This is the problem. So we have to change our movement such that we will attract his sympathy. Rather than trying to own and to know, to serve the one who knows everything and owns everything. What will be left to be known for us then? And what will we need if we have as our friend the one who owns and knows everything? This is the idea of bhakti. So in Braj, this ahoytuki apratiyata, ahoytuki means there's no cause. It is not coming from the causal plane of karma. But as I say, if God exercises himself in relation to us, we can know. Bhakti is causeless. It's love, and love is beyond reason. It has no beginning. It's causeless. It has no beginning in the causal plane of karma, action and reaction, and nothing can stop it. This kind of bhakti fully satisfies the Supreme Atma. And that is exhibited in Brajan relative to the concluding verses here of the second chapter. In Braj, the gopis exemplify the highest devotion. According to the Braj society, their relationship with Krishna is not allowed. Paramor, parakiya, is not allowed. Everything is set up to check it. But nothing can check it. It goes on anyway. In our devotion, if anything gets in the way, <laughs> we will put it off. Their bhakti is such. Not only if anything gets in the way, it can't get in the way, but it turns unfavorable circumstances into favorable circumstances by its very nature. So we find this in the gopis who, even when everyone else in Braj goes to bed at night, they are awake in rasa with Krishna. And when the sun comes in the morning, it is like the dark night for them because they have to be separated from Krishna. They can't be caught in broad daylight even looking at him. We talked about this to some extent, how we should learn from their example of devotion, such a high ideal. So Krishna here really in the second chapter, which is a summary of the rest of the material in many respects, is speaking about the doctrine that he wants Arjun to embrace. Bhakti. Here and in the last verse he says, Esha Brahmistiti Parta Nainam Prapya Vimuyati Stitvasyam Antakali Pi Brahmanirbhanam Richati. He says, One who has attained this divine state is never deluded. He never falls from that. And if one is fixed in this consciousness even at the time of death, which is a troublesome time, the implication is, one attains Brahmanirvanam, Richati, very easily. So, it doesn't sound a lot like bhakti, Brahmanirvan. Nirvan is a, primarily a Buddhist word. It means to blow out, to extinguish. Therefore, Buddhism was once characterized by the Pope as being a negative theology. Oh, and an outrage came in the Buddhist community in the West, calling the theology of Buddhism negative. But what he meant by that, I'm sure, is that it is 
It's about blowing out, extinguishing something, extinguishing desire, which is the cause of all pain, according to the Buddhist doctrine, and being painless. Now, being painless does seem to have a somewhat of a positive connotation, <laughs> but only in the vaguest sense. I've given an example before. If we are in negative numbers and we rise to zero, that may seem positive. But in comparison to the positive numbers that could be attained, zero is nothing. Do you follow? So simply to extinguish the cause of suffering in this world, attachment to material sense objects, desire in relation to the ever-changing material phenomenon, which is here today and gone tomorrow. Simply to extinguish that is really half of the equation in our estimation. So Krishna says, he doesn't say Prakriti Nirvana, he says Brahma Nirvana. Prakriti Nirvana is the ideal of the Buddhist. There's no sense of consciousness there. That consciousness is ultimately a reality. In Buddhism, consciousness is a passing thing. The ideal is that matter is constantly in flux. We see matter. We don't see anything else. We have no reason to believe that there is anything else. We are part of the flux of matter. The problem is we don't identify ourselves as part of this, that ever-changing material nature. We're frozen in a, a momentary sense of identity that differentiates us from the ever-changing flow of material reality. This is Buddhist doctrine, to some extent, in a general sense. Therefore, there's a problem for us. So give up your identity as an individual, distinct from the whole thing, and realize that you are the earth, you are the tree, you are the stone that's constantly in flux and transformation, and so forth. The objective of such a culture is what we call prakriti nirvana. Prakriti means material nature. So to become a stone to merge with material nature, with prakriti. There will be no suffering in that. No suffering. And as much as enlightenment involves no suffering, well, then Buddhist doctrine is on target. But the interesting thing, of course, is that the full sense of enlightenment spoke about in Bhagavad Gita takes us to a life of suffering. Chant and be unhappy. <laughs> this is a very high idea, of course. And it takes us to again to Braj Bhakti. Gopis are always unhappy. Devotee is always unhappy. Never feeling that he or she can adequately glorify Krishna. Krishna is so wonderful, so charming, so beautiful, so endearing. Never feeling adequate. There's a kind of pain in that, but that pain is full of joy. Looks like pain on the outside. Krishna Premier Adbhuta Charit, the wonderful Adbhuta Charit, wonderful character of Prem, of love of Krishna, is that on the outside it looks like poison, burns like fire, but on inside, Bitare Anandamoy, it is full of joy. And conversely, material life looks very joyful on the outside. If I could just have that, if I could just acquire this or that, I would be happy. But actually, no matter how much we acquire on the outside, inside we are discontented. So you see, what I'm saying is that love of Krishna is the full picture of life. The full picture of life. 
everything is fully in place. Suffering is also there in the enlightened condition, a kind of blissful suffering. It said, love makes the heart grow fonder, something like that. This is what Krishna is talking about. He uses the term Brahma-nirvana, but if we follow this term, nirvana, throughout the Gita, and here, this end of the second chapter, where he gives a very kind of brief overview of the condition of enlightenment, is played out over chapters 3, 4, 5, and 6, where different disciplines are also mentioned. Karma Yoga, engaging in relation to the world in a yogic context with the spirit of detachment. Gyan Yoga, stepping back from the world and interaction to be absorbed in the culture of mystic insight. Karma Sannyas Yoga, chapter 5. Renouncing activity that's not conducive to that inner culture. And Dhyan Yoga, chapter 6, practices of meditation for one who's qualified to sit and so forth. And Bhakti Yoga. Bhakti Yoga is the culmination of chapters 3, 4, 5, and 6, an outline for which is given here at the end of chapter 2. And overall in chapter 2, Krishna is speaking about Bhakti Yoga. We already discussed this at some length. And here at the end about the, the fruits of Bhakti Yoga. And now this will all be played out in the following chapters. And as we'll see at the end of the sixth chapter, it culminates in Bhakti Yoga. So Krishna wants Arjuna to be a Bhakta. The word Nirvan it is found in the fifth chapter, in two or three places. Krishna identifies himself with Nirvan, his Paramatma feature, and ultimately himself in chapter six. He teaches that this Samadhuna Vidhyate, that this Brahmaniranam is subsumed in me. What I'm talking about here, what I talked about, he's saying in chapter 2 at the end, Brahmaniran, what I'm talking about is not Prakriti Nirvan, but Brahmaniran. Brahman means consciousness, that there's a reality called consciousness that's distinct from matter, and we're of that nature. And to be fully absorbed in Brahmaniran means to know me, to taste me, Rasulvai Saha. Taitari Upanishad says what? Brahman is rasa. And rasa, that is Krishna. Rasaraj, for that matter. Aesthetic experience in transcendence. So Krishna is speaking about bhakti in no uncertain terms, but takes a bhakta to appreciate all this. And that's who this book was spoken for and to, to Arjuna. We know Arjuna to be a bhakta, a devotee, nothing else, not a jnani, not a jogi, karmi, but a bhakta. So, here in chapter 3, in very sweet language, Arjun speaks to Krishna. He asks a question. In a mood of sakya, sakyarasa, Arjun, as we've already explained, is a, his devotional experience in transcendence, his state of aesthetic rapture, in relation to Krishna, is called Sakya, a particular type of Sakya, friendly. The principal characteristic of the Sakya relationship is equals. We are equals. We are talking about Bhagwan, Brahman, the Great. And this devotee, Arjun, has a relationship with him like he's my pal. Here he's slapping Krishna on the back, poking him in a sweet way, with some jest, hasya, 
he's expressing his sakya, his friendliness. His friendliness is called Purisambandha. It means he's a city pal of Krishna. Krishna has his comrades also in Braj, in the village. That is more intimate still. There they will wrestle with Krishna and defeat him. And Krishna will have to carry them on his shoulders for being the loser. They sense absolutely no difference between Krishna's body and their own transcendental form. Just like if you're very close with someone, then you can walk down the street holding hands. Right? But if you don't know someone, then to touch them, you'll feel awkward. (laughs) Don't touch me. Why did he touch me? He bumped into me. But if we have affectionate relationship, then his body, my body, no difference. They feel like this with Krishna. Krishna will rest his head on their lap. And they may rest their head on Krishna's lap also. Put food in Krishna's mouth. Krishna will take it out and put it in their mouth. Very uncivilized sector. (laughs) When Krishna comes to the city, then things become a little more sophisticated. But he has his friends there, and of them Arjuna is the best, the closest. In Kurukshetra, where Bhagavad Gita is spoken, Krishna becomes the chariot driver of Arjuna, Parthasarathi. Most everybody is seeing him with four arms, but Arjuna is seeing him with two arms. The nature of his love is he causes Bhagavan to manifest in this way, with two hands, human-like, for the sake of greater intimacy. If I walked in tonight with four arms, then you'd be sitting a little further back. (laughs) So Krishna, of course, I only have two arms, but... With Krishna has, can show four arms sometimes, he does, in Dwarka, Mathura, sometimes he show four arms, sometimes two arms. And what is that relative to? In whose presence he is. In Braj, in Vasant Rasalila, in the springtime Rasalila, described in Gita Govinda, when Krishna left the Rasa dance and gopis were searching for him, he appeared before them in four arms, Narayan. They said, oh, Nara- Om Narayan. Have you seen Krishna? Can you tell us where he is? When he tried to show forearms before Radha, he couldn't do it. He couldn't manifest that, the force of her love. Therefore, as I said many times, the love in the heart of such devotees is non-different from Krishna. If we want to find Krishna, Mahajana Yena Gata Sapanta, we should follow the Mahajanas because Dharmasya tattvam nihitam kuhayam. The truth of dharma, dharmasya tattvam, and this means prem, prema dharma, that is guhyam. Guhyam means hidden. Dharmasya tattvam nihitam guhayam. In the hearts of great souls. There it's kept. And if we get their company, sometimes it will come out, we see that, and we become charmed by that. We want that. If they open their heart and share that with us, no greater wealth can be found in this world. If we want Krishna, we should follow such devotees. That's where he is. Naham Vaikuntha Tishtami. What does Krishna say? I am not in Vaikuntha. Yogi Nam Hridayeshuva. I am not in the heart of the yogis. Where am I? Yatra Gitrayayanti Madbhakta. Wherever my devotees are chanting about me, I am present there. 
So if we want to make real progress in spiritual life, we should put more emphasis on the devotee of Krishna than Krishna. That is where Krishna is to be found, in his heart. Arjun, heart full of love of Krishna, friendly love in the city. Here he says very nice things in the two introductory verses to this chapter. He says, Jayasi chet karmanaste matabudhir janardana tat kim karmani ghore mam niyo jayasi keshava Remember now, Arjun is a bhakta, but he's in some apparent type of ignorance created by Krishna, arranged by Krishna, so that he could speak Bhagavad Gita to him and the ideal of bhakti so dear to Krishna could come out for all of us through Arjun's interest and inquiry and apparent confusion. But as I say, it's apparent confusion. He's a devotee. He has such intimate relationship with Krishna, we cannot imagine. So really it comes out here in this verse. He says, if in your opinion, O Janardhan, knowledge is superior to action, then why, O Keshava, are you engaging me in this horrible action of fighting? Because Krishna is telling Arjuna to fight in the battle. Now, technically speaking, in the context of the Gita, the apparent confusion here that Arjuna has arises from the second chapter. In the second chapter, Krishna begins to speak and answer Arjuna's reservations about fighting. Arjuna had reservations based on Dharma. He exhibited that he was very learned, a religious man, compassionate, and so forth. And based on all these things, he cited very good reasoning why he should not fight. And in the second chapter, Krishna begins to answer. And he says, you're a fool. All the reasons you've given for not fighting don't take into consideration the most important thing in life. What is that? The Atma. All your reasons are based on bodily considerations, and I tell you first and foremost, you're not that body to begin with. What of that? He speaks about the nature of the soul. He gives this kind of gyan, taking the whole thing to another level altogether. Then, after speaking to some extent about the nature of the soul and on that basis dismissing Arjuna's arguments, then Krishna answers his arguments even based on dharma, religious life. What I mean to say by that is, one thing is experiential spiritual life, another thing is religious life. We should try to have an orientation to Bhagavad Gita for experiential spiritual life, not merely religious life, to taste the soul, to experience the soul, and more. Not simply to add some religious doctrine onto our life. That may be a crude beginning, but Bhagavad Gita wants to quickly take us to another level. Yes, you can read the whole of Mahabharata and learn how to be a religious man, but in one chapter, which is Bhagavad Gita of Mahabharata, what it's really all about, life that is, is explained. And it's not about being religious, it's about being super-religious, going beyond the limits of religious life and knowing the nature of the self. Still, Krishna comes back to Arjuna and says, anyway, Based on Dharma, I also answer you. In six, seven or eight verses, he spoke about Dharma. He said, you think it will be religious 
not to fight, but I say by not fighting, you'll be irreligious. And explain the nature of Kshatriya Dharma, the Dharma of the warrior, from a socio-religious point of view, a Barnan Ashram, there are occasions that arise in which the Kshatriya should fight, and so forth and so on. But he ended that section showing us where he was really going with his argument. Not in the direction of religious life, but in the direction of yoga and bhakti yoga. Because he told Arjuna you should fight with what? Equanimity of mind. Not attached to the results of victory, loss, or gain, pleasure, or pain. And then he says, I told you about the nature of the soul, jnana, shankya. Now let me tell you about yoga the means by which that and more can be realized. And that yoga is about equanimity of mind, detachment, balance, not concerned with victory or loss, pleasure or pain. These things will come and they will go. But the equanimity of mind that a witness to the whole affair has, who's not an active participant, this is the position of the soul. He's a witness. Prakriti kriyamanani gunai karmani sarvasa. Hankara munatma kartahamati manyate. Krishna will explain. All the movements of this world, that is simply the movement of material nature. Triguna. Because of a hankara. False ego. Material egoic identification with matter. You think you are doing this, doing that, but actually this is all being carried out just by the vehicle of material nature. You're the passenger. You're the driver, but you've identified with the car. It used to be like that when I was a kid in the 50s. The car was a real extension of the self. It probably still is for many people. But in those days, guys would be out there polishing their car, and, <laughs> and that's how they would get a date. <laughs> so, the material nature is like the vehicle housing for us only. We activate it, but then it, once it starts to move, its movements, we activate it by our desire, we come in touch with it, but its movements are distinct from us. We are the witness sitting. So this equanimity that Krishna is talking about that is arrived at by yoga, which is the objective in one sense, the basic objective of yoga, to step back from the movie of material life and witness it and not be carried away with the ups or the downs, knowing them to be what they are. I've sown seeds in the past, the reactions of my karma is coming, let it play itself out. I've got another life distinct from all of this. Let me engage in that. Krishna is telling Arjun when he says to fight, he's talking about this fighting, not about violence, really fighting, but he's really talking about the fight of yoga, the discipline of yoga. So he encourages Arjun along these lines, and what kind of yoga? We studied carefully. He's talking about bhakti yoga. But when he speaks about gyan and about fighting, about knowledge and about action, some confusion arises. He tells Arjun, to be in knowledge, the soul doesn't kill anybody, can't be killed. And then he says, now you should fight. So there's uh, some confusion that comes there. Then Krishna goes on speaking. Now Arjuna has a chance to ask another question. So he says, what is this? You speak about knowledge being superior to action, and then you ask me to engage in, in warfare. Horrible action. Now, really what Arjuna's resistance 
is about is that he's a devotee. He's not interested in karma or gyan, either of these two paths. He says, oh, Jana Arden. Jana Arden can mean who gives pain to his own people. He says, this is you. He's poking fun at Krishna. Oh, Janardhan, who's fond of giving pain to your own people. Krishna gives pain to his devotees. Disappearing like he did in the Rasalila, how much pain the gopis felt. By going from Vrindavan to Mathura, he was only 11 years old. He was mature like a 15-year-old boy, but by age only 11, he left Vrindavan, he went to Mathura, then Dwarka, for over 100 years. How much pain the inhabitants of Vrindavan felt. Arjuna is saying this, this is you, this is your nature, John Arden, O Keshava. You give pain to your own people, he said, but it's okay, because you're Kaisha, you're the controller of Brahma and Shiva, everyone is under your control. You have a right to do whatever you want. We cannot object, but this is what you do, that you cannot deny. So he says, why are you speaking like this? Why don't you come out and say it, he's saying to Krishna. We feel like that too, when we read the first six chapters of Bhagavad Gita. We feel, Krishna, why don't you just come out and say it? Devotion to you, that's what it's all about. Why do we have to sort through all this karma yoga, jnana yoga, dhyana, karma mishra bhakti, jnana mishra bhakti, yoga mishra bhakti, we finally get in the middle of the chapter, middle of the book in the ninth chapter, and you say, bhakto Be my devotee. Think of me. Give namaskar to me. This is the conclusion of the Gita. Reiterated again at the end, in the 18th chapter. He says the same thing. He says it twice, so that Arjuna will be sure in the end. But sometimes we read and we think, because we are already devotees. That's why we are studying Bhagavad Gita. We have some adhikar for bhakti, some eligibility for bhakti. What is that? Shraddha. What is Shraddha. Shraddha is a kind of sense that simply by surrendering to Krishna, oh, my life will be complete. Where does it come from? It's called good fortune. It comes from being in the company of those who have that. This is how it comes. Just their glance will bring such good fortune to us. My Guru Maharaj had that kind of power of glance, of all of his physiology, the most prominent feature was his glancing, laden with love. If he looked at you, he had the power to give Sukriti, Bhakti. Sukriti means that which, upon accumulating, turns into Shraddha, into faith, a kind of confidence, a kind of knowing. Faith is often billed as not knowing. Oh, you have faith, you don't know. But it's actually a knowing a kind of knowing, who has it, doesn't have doubt, can move, proceed. When you have faith in something, then you proceed happily. I know, I have confidence, faith, I will do. Certainty, faith is a kind of certainty, a kind of knowing that cannot be arrived at by other means. And it comes to us through those who have it. It is coming from people who have standing in experience that is beyond our range of immediate experience. Yet, we have a sense that it must exist. Such a plane of happiness, peacefulness, surety. We're looking for it. We're looking for surety and certainty in everything we do. 
by the very way in which we function in our everyday lives, we illustrate the fact that we think and feel as if such a plane exists. And some people are standing firmly on that. And they show that they didn't get it by all of the busy things that we are doing to try to get it, by another method altogether. Such persons, even by the power of their glancing, can create this kind of sukriti that builds up in us and one day dawns as faith, a kind of knowing. And I want to associate with those people more and more. I want to keep their company. I have a strong sense that in that company, whatever I need will be found. Even they have nothing. Maybe only wearing a torn cloth, or certainly not the latest fashions. The monk's robe, beggar, tridandi bhikshu. But begging to give us the wealth of bhakti, not to get anything from us. Anurakta katakshamoksham. Krishna is described like this. Amongst his friends, entering the forest, playing his flute, hearing the sound, and glancing at the inhabitants of Vrindavan, Anurakta Katakshamoksham. Loving glance, it is liberating, freeing. Baladibhijibhushan says some devotees they have like this. That glance can create the Sukriti. So our faith, our eligibility for bhakti comes from that over lifetimes. Unknowingly we may get that. When we come to a session like this, in the least we have some Sukriti and partial knowing. We knowing this might be a good thing. This might be interesting. This might be good for me. I don't believe it is everything, but something I might get good from that. It means you have some Sukriti. That's called Gyata Sukriti. With some understanding coming. Keep coming. Keep associating. And then understanding, full understanding will come. What is the value of this? Such a valuable thing. Everything can be found in this. I want to keep in that circle, and that Sangha, and that company. There all my wealth will be found. So Arjun has such Shraddha, developed Shraddha. He has Adhikara for Bhakti. The other thing about bhakti and eligibility for bhakti, it is this faith and it is characterized also by naiti shakti navayaragya. It means not too much inclined towards renunciation, not too much inclined towards enjoyment. Some balance. One person is fully inclined towards sense enjoyment, no interest in renunciation. Other person fully interested in renunciation and getting away from the world. Bhakti is in the middle. So Arjuna is in the middle. Therefore, he doesn't like to hear about Gyan or Karma. Gyan is leading in the direction of renunciation and Karma in the direction of exploitation. And Krishna, ostensibly, has been speaking about Gyan and Karma, knowledge and action. So Arjuna is poking him and says, say, Oh, Saki, hey Saki, what are you doing talking about Karma and Gyan? You're giving pain to your own people. This is your nature. I am your devotee and you're talking to me about this. But you are Keshava, whatever you say, that's all right. But why you do like this? Why don't you come out and say it? What your teaching is really all about. And as I say, sometimes we have Adhikar for Bhakti, so we think the same way. Why well, we have to read about Karma Yoga and Gan Yoga and all these things? Find out about Bhakti. Because Krishna wants to explain Bhakti in no uncertain terms. Clearly, he wants to establish what is Shuddha Bhakti in Bhagavad Gita, what it means to be his devotee. And therefore, 
in the beginning, here in the first six chapters, he talks about this by way of contrast. He talks about karma yoga, jnana yoga, dhyana yoga, different disciplines. And he's contrasting that with bhakti yoga. And in the context of contrasting these yogas with bhakti yoga, he's showing whatever is in karma yoga is in bhakti yoga and more. Whatever is in jnana yoga is in bhakti yoga and more. He's showing all these things. When he comes to the end of the sixth chapter, oh, we understand what it means to be a devotee. The wonderful thing about devotion, you can be a devotee and have practically no knowledge and be inclined towards sense gratification also. Still bhakti will come to you. That is her kindness. But to practice other types of yoga, some other qualification is there. In bhakti, only qualification is shraddha. And she will come to you. And then she will qualify you. In terms of all the developments we find that we will go through in karma yoga, jnana yoga, and so on and so forth. So Krishna wants to explain bhakti thoroughly. So, and the scripture often works in this way. By directly speaking about it, indirectly. Anvayad itarataha, Bhagavatam says. Anvayad itarataha. Same thing, anvayad vatirekabdhyam. In Chaturshloka of Bhagavatam, first sloka of Bhagavatam, and in the four verses of Bhagavatam, Krishna spoke to Brahma. He said, directly and indirectly. This book is about Krishna, directly and indirectly. And indirectly, it's just another way of shedding light on the subject. Therefore, we go through this exercise, and it's an important exercise, because as I say, what's contained in all these other disciplines is also within bhakti, and therefore we should... In our culture, bhakti sees that these things are coming within us. The detachment, which is the basic principle of karma yoga, is developing within us in a healthy way while interacting with the world with the spirit of detachment that is actually developing in us. That mystic knowledge, insight is coming within us, jnana, as a result of our practice of bhakti. That capacity to sit and do dhyana meditation is coming within us. To actually be able to sit and contemplate the pastimes of Krishna, the name of Krishna, without the mind wandering here, there, and everywhere. So we are eligible for bhakti, but only at the doorstep, threshold of bhakti. So high we will have to go still. But the generosity of bhakti comes to us, even though we're unqualified for anything else. So much of this section here, in these chapters, beginning with chapter 3, is about qualification, eligibility. Arjun says in the second verse, which is the second of the two verses that make up the introduction of this chapter, He says, with speech that seems equivocal, you have confused my intelligence. Therefore, please tell me clearly by which path I will attain the highest good. He wants, like I say, just Krishna, just come out and say it. But Krishna is not prepared to just come out and say, oh, just do bhakti now. Because we don't know what bhakti is. He wants to explain that. He alluded to that fact that it was bhakti he wanted Arjuna to engage in earlier in the second chapter, and we'll find it throughout this chapter also, as we're finding it here in Arjuna's inquiry. Arjuna is a devotee. He's not very inclined towards jnana or karma. He's in the middle path of bhakti. He wants to serve the person who owns everything and knows everything. 
He doesn't want to own anything. He's not concerned for knowing anything. Because he thinks, oh, by serving the one who knows and owns everything, what's left for me to possess, what's left for me to know? I don't need to know anything. It's a burden to know so many things. And at least then people will ask you so many questions. <laughs> Knowledge says to be liberating, but it also can be a burden. Therefore, we are interested in Gyan Shunya Bhakti. Bhakti unencumbered by Gyan. Particularly, we are interested in this way because of the two, karma and gyan, meaning what? Desire for sense enjoyment, karma, and liberation, desire for liberation, mukti, gyan. A person in knowledge doesn't pursue his interest in relation to things that don't endure. Am I right? If you have knowledge that something is going to be, in a very short period of time, is going to disappear, you're not going to invest in it, are you? So when one comes to real knowledge, he knows the world is here today, gone tomorrow. But we don't live like that, therefore we're not in knowledge. Everything, everything you see, everything you can think about, the very sense of who you are, Indian, American, man, woman, will disappear. How much should you invest in that? We all agree with the basic logic. We should not invest in something that won't endure, that won't be wise. If you are in a dot-com today, it's not a good idea to invest too much. It might be gone tomorrow. (laughs) When people thought they'd be around for a long time, investing, everyone was happy to have stock options. Who wants a stock option now? Stock option in what? (laughs) Will it even be around in six months? So we all have practical experience like that. We have to extend that practical knowledge to its fullest expression. This is only reasonable. What I think to be myself, that will be gone tomorrow. How much should I invest in that? I'll tell you how much. You should invest as much in that as will be useful for finding out that which is enduring. You should use your human life to hear Bhagavad Gita, to take Krishna Nam. Use your senses, your mind, your intelligence, which is your sense of self, for this purpose. That is a good investment. But to invest in it, in and of itself, you will get zero return. So a person in knowledge doesn't invest in his enduring interest to be happy in things that will not be around tomorrow. So in that sense, Gyan is better than karma. At the same time, we are taught by Srila Rupa Goswami that interest in sense gratification and desire for that is better than desire for moksha, liberation, which is the end of knowledge, if you want bhakti. Very funny religion. Bhakti says Better to be a sense enjoyer than to desire moksha. You'll be in a better position to take advantage of bhakti. And moksha is so much better and knowledge than the ignorance of sense gratification. This is, as I say, a very odd idea. What is the point? The point is that the desire for moksha is very foreign to bhakti. Whereas the desire for material 
objects keeps us in a position where, whether we like it or not, we have to do some seva. We have to do some work. We have to do some service. Do you understand? Even if you want to enjoy sense gratification, you have to serve somebody <laughs> all the time. I think there's a song like that. Who wrote it? Bob Jones. Was it Bob? You have to serve somebody. Yeah, I think he must have been based on his experience with the devotees. And um, that's good. Because what Krishna consciousness is about, what real enlightenment is about, the full sense of it is service in the Leela of Krishna. So if you're in a realm where you have to do some service, in that realm there are going to be devotees also circulating around talking about where is the best place to place your serving tendency in relation to Krishna, they will say. Well, that would make sense. I've got to serve somebody. Why don't I serve Krishna? But if your culture is one of giving up service, doing nothing, being peaceful, shanti, 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 this is very foreign to bhakti. Now, in the context of serving Krishna, you will get that knowledge that the jnani gets in a way that's innocuous, not harmful to you. But if you go after that, independent of bhakti, then it will be troublesome because you will be developing a disposition that is contrary to bhakti. This is the idea. This means, of course, not devotional mukti, but general sense of mukti, sayuja mukti. If you get sayuja mukti, let us say if you're successful in the realm of karma, what will you have? Nothing, just another birth, another birth, another birth. Birth after birth, you go to heaven, come down, go to heaven, come down. Birth after birth. And in these realms, devotees are always circulating, giving you the opportunity to serve Krishna instead. If you get the result of the desire for moksha, what happens? Then you go to Brahman, moksha, sayuja, and you never, ever, ever have the chance for prema bhakti. You'll be liberated and isolated You'll be in eternal isolation. It will be relief, no doubt, from material existence, but no opportunity for positive seva to Bhagwan, Krishna. You cannot ever poke Krishna in the stomach and say, hey, buddy, like Arjuna is doing. Imagine, Krishna is Purna Brahma. Yan mitram paramanandam Purna Brahma sanatanam. Oho bhagyam, oho bhagyam, nanda govodajokrasam. The Supreme Brahma, he said this. Brahma? He knows Brahman. And all Veda, Chatumuk Brahma, four-headed Brahma, he knows he looked in every direction. He read the Veda inside out and backwards. He's the epitome of a Brahman. He knows Brahman. And he said, Oho Bhagyam, Oho Bhagyam, Nanda Gopar Bajokasam, Tan Mitram Paramanandam, Purna Brahma Sanatanam. When he came in touch with Vrindavan, Bhakti, he saw Krishna with his cowherd friends and calves and how they were interrelating with Krishna, who the Supreme Brahman, he said, Oh, Bhagyam, Oh, Bhagyam. Oh, my God, he said. Oh, my God. How lucky you are. I cannot put in words how fortunate you are. Purna Brahma. Sanatanam. The Supreme Brahman. The Supreme Bliss itself. Brahman. Yan Mitram Paramanandam Purna Brahma Sanatanam. Is your friend. It appeared like an ordinary friend. His mind was bewildered by that. 
such a state of Brahman consciousness, of realization, so deep in Brahman, so much in love with truth, with reality, that our reality shows this face as Krishna. And that thing that is sought after by the jnanis, by such austerities, they are prepared to live in the Himalayas naked for lifetimes, just to glimpse that Brahman. These boys are poking him and laughing with him, joking with him. Brahma saw that he could not imagine. What is this ideal of bhakti? How deep it takes us into the absolute. Such intimacy. You want to be one with God. This is oneness. Real idea of oneness. If you go simply to Brahman in a simple sense of the term, Sayuji Mukti we call, enter into the Brahman, Shanti, undifferentiated Brahman, no chance for bhakti. Lost there, retired forever. Therefore our charges have said, of the two, both things, karma and gyan, they are antagonistic to bhakti. The desire for these is antagonistic to bhakti, but the desire for gyan is worse. That's what we find also in this progression of Bhagavad Gita, as Krishna answers Arjuna. He stresses, if you want to come to the knowledge that I spoke about earlier, I recommend a way to come to it. Through Nishkam Karma Yoga, through action, come to knowledge. But not through inaction. Come through action. And really, of course, what he's talking about, as I've mentioned, and it will become clear as the text goes on, through bhakti that knowledge will come. You'll be liberated in such a way as to enter into a eternal relationship with me. So much here is about adhikar, as I say, eligibility in this section beginning here in chapter 3. Arjuna has eligibility for bhakti. So he's telling Arjuna, I'm not interested in karma, I'm not interested in gyan. I'm not disinterested, but I'm not interested. In other words, within the context of bhakti, then, we may also have to enjoy our senses. We're not against it. If we celebrate the janamastami of Krishna, we will not say, oh, I cannot take sweets. I cannot eat sweets. I want to control my senses. I cannot eat halava, pakora, sabji, up to the neck. No. For bhakti, that would be favorable on such a day. Mahaprabhu's associates took it is described by Krishna's Kaviraj up to the neck. Prashad of Jagannath. Don't think that their senses weren't enjoying that. If for Krishna's seva I am to enjoy my senses, I'd be a sense enjoyer. No problem. And if circumstances arise that it would be favorable to me for, to give up sense gratification and renounce, I will do. No problem. As he likes. Karma and Gyan, they are like two tributaries of water from the glacier, small ones. And bhakti is like the Ganga. If that gyan, if that karma enters the stream of bhakti, it will go to the Bay of Bengal. It will go all over India, all through the subcontinent, enter the ocean. That is the desire of the river to enter the ocean. If that doesn't enter the stream of bhakti, it will never enter the ocean of Krishna. Bhakti harmonizes these two tendencies of karma and jnana, makes them healthy, happy, and useful to us. In and of themselves, however, they will not be fruitful. This is what Arjuna is really saying here in his questions. And in a joking way, he says, why you give me trouble and talk to me about these things? 
why don't you talk about bhakti? And I've explained why he doesn't talk about bhakti, because he's going to talk about it indirectly first. Also here in this second verse, where we'll conclude tonight, I've talked for some time, Arjuna is careful in his speech. He says one small word means a lot here. He says, Eva. He says, why do you speak to me like this in a confusing way? Eva means as if, as if confusing. He said, really, he's saying, really, you have no fault. There's really no fault in you. He's joking with Krishna, accusing him of being faulty, but he said, actually, my fault. The fact that his friendship with Krishna is based on seva, is coming out. In his use of the word name Keshava in the previous verse, in the use of the word Eva in this verse. So, this we should understand. That friendship, like Arjun has with Krishna, inconceivable to us, it is arises out of a platform of seva. That means this. Now we have those who are initiated devotees on the path of bhakti. Like this morning we gave some initiations at our monastery. At that time, Mahaprabhu said, the devotee gets a sadaka deha. That person gets a sadaka deha. Deha means body. Sadaka means a practitioner. There's liberated person and there's materially bound person. Sadaka is in between. He cannot be classified like a conditioned person in bondage. You may be in prison, but if you have the key, <laughs> are you an ordinary prisoner? No. With Diksha, we get the key. What we need. We get the key, the mantra, the secret, secret mantra. Everything is found in there. Now we need to turn that key and come out of the prison. So you may be in prison, but you have the key. So you're not outside. You're inside, but you're not outside, but you're not inside in a special category. Who becomes properly initiated gets a sadhaka day. It means a body of a sadhaka. And he should live his life, she should live her life like a sadhaka. That means what I am doing is I am cultivating Krishna Bhakti all the time. In the midst of doing so many other things, what I'm really doing internally I'm cultivating Krishna Bhakti. I may sit and talk for hours with somebody, but I know why I'm talking, how far I'm talking, how far to go. He's just having a conversation. I'm not lost in that conversation if I'm a sadhaka. I know where I am, why I'm there, how far I will talk, how far I will let it go before I bring it back to something meaningful, to spiritual discussion. It's not we sit, take prasad, and we just talk, 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 and I'm doing something. I took prasad, I had some seva, now I'm taking prasad, I have other seva, I'm taking all the time. What is my practical seva? What is my inner life? Devotee appears to be fully in the world, but a real sadhaka is not. It doesn't mean sometimes I'm a sadhaka, sometimes I'm something else. All the time sadhaka. This is the idea. Ongoing Krishnanushilanam. Ongoing culture. So Sadaka has a body suitable for serving Krishna in this realm. Guru will engage him in all such services and tax him, tax her, and she or he will have to be very flexible. Now we are not very flexible. I like this, I don't like that. I like him, I don't like her. Mm, I don't like to go to San Francisco. 
I don't like uh, the fog there or this, that. We are set in stone in so many ways. We are not very flexible. To become Krishna conscious, we have to become very flexible. Our heart, which is atrophied, frozen over to a very limited conception of self, very, very limited, we have to melt. What is the difference between ice and water in terms of utility? There's such a difference. With ice, ah, you can cool water. With water, what can you do? So many things. You can cook, you can bathe, you can swim. Our heart is like ice, it has to melt like water. What we can do then? What we can be then? So when we melt our heart that's frozen to a sense of self that's very constricting and limited through service, through making ourselves available to be punished by the Guru, Punished. This is the relationship. Very unpalatable for him. He's also a devotee. <laughs> but his business is to punish us. Not us, but punish our ego. Punish our sense of self. Go here, go there, do this, do that. Don't do this, don't do that. We have to melt to all of that. Of course, he's very wise. He knows us better than we know ourselves. Therefore, he knows how to turn up the heat, when to turn it down. We should always keep ourselves engaged like dancing, moving our feet, moving our feet. In the company of the sadhu, it's like the heated floor. When the floor is heated, we are jumping a little quicker. The floor is hot, have to dance. In that company, we have to dance, we have to dance. Not standing still, dancing. What is the difference? Self-expression, so much. So when we melt this ahankar, material ego, what will happen to us, we think? What will happen to me? Put myself in the hands of the Guru. What will happen to me? I will dissipate. I will melting. I'm melting. But it's not like that. <laughs> melting to the material ego in the context of culturing bhakti under good guidance corresponds with getting a real form. Staibhav. Our present form is made of so many emotions. Like, I like this, I don't like that. This is good, this is bad. This feeling, that feeling. And they're always fleeting and transient, moving, coming and going. I think I really like her. But then I found, oh, I made a big mistake. She thinks I really like him. And then sometime down the road, she found, oh, my God, I made a big mistake. I don't like him at all. This happens, just to give an example. Where can we find a dominant emotion? Life must be emotive, expressive, full of feeling. Not to just stop feeling. How to feel in such a way that I can be satisfied. This is what bhakti talks about. In the language of aesthetics of bhakti, it's called staibhav. Arjuna has staibhav for Krishna. He's friend of Krishna. That will never change. Nothing can change that. Nothing. Gopis love Krishna like Paramod. That will never change. Nothing can change that. If hell frees over, that will never change. If they're in hell, if they're in heaven, it doesn't matter. Nothing can change that. Any external condition. We are blown in the wind of external conditions. But in real bhakti, nothing can change that. There is permanent love, permanent fulfillment of your life. Staibhav. And that staibhav, that emotion, corresponds with the shape. It has a shape, a form. Arjuna is taking the form of a friend of Krishna. A city pal of Krishna. In their gopi form, gopa form, this form, that form. 
in Braj. It takes a shape. There is a form, a swarup. You have a sadaka deha. There is a siddha deha also. And if you gauge this sadaka deha appropriately by melting your false ego and doing the needful, what will call your progress, if this is your, the way in which you guide your life, what will call my progress in spiritual life? Then as the material ego is melting simultaneously, the real ego is developing. Real emotion is developing in a corresponding form and you will have a form, a swarup, a siddhadeha. It will never change. It's you. It's what you are. All you can be. This is how we should approach bhakti. As our faith develops through good association, as our understanding, which corresponds with faith, develops, place yourself in the hands of a good guide. This is our uh, humble recommendation. Any question? Yes. Regarding the moksha bodies, and there's a verse that Aruya Krishna Parampadam Tata, and apparently that's some, there's some controversy over that. And Prabhupada always said that you come to that position because of impure, impure intelligence. Actually, the verse says that. But Prabhupada stresses that you fall back down again. So what is that situation of attaining Brahman, which, as you were explaining, it is more a permanent almost eternal situation and and how do you fall down from that you don't no one falls down from brahman realization there's nowhere to fall and there's no one to fall one is identified with everything there's nowhere to go being identified with everything there's no individual identification so there's no one to go anywhere so who's to fall where there's no sense of where no sense of who just a state of being eternal being no misery and there's joy in that, but in comparison to the joy of bhakti, it's very, very limited. So, Prabhupada was so adamant, and appropriately so, in advocating the glory of bhakti and involving people, giving people all that they could possibly get by engaging them in bhakti, that he spoke of that verse in such a way as if to say, even if you enter the Brahman, even if you're successful in mukti, you have to come down again anyway. So don't try that. But what the verse is saying is, Abhishuddha Buddhaya, Vimukta Manina. It said, their intelligence is not pure. They think that they're liberated. They're actually not liberated. So there are many conditions through various practices of yogic disciplines and so forth that can lead one to states in which one is led to believe that he's a Jivan Mukta, a liberated soul. And, in fact, he may not be. Or, he may be a Jivan Mukta. Jivan Mukta means liberated in this life, but he has not attained Bideha Mukti. Bideha Mukti means Bideha. After the demise of the body, which is the Parabdha, Karma, of the Jnani, he enters into Brahman. Before that, he's a Jivan Mukta, but in the state of Jivan Mukti, one could become a Bhakta, right? Like Shukadev, Chattisan Kumara. One could fall down also. Possibilities there. But in Bideha Mukti, then there's no possibility. So it could be said to be referring to Jivan Mukta as liberated, and from there he falls down. Or, as I say, in imaginary sense, as the verse really says in its language, Abhishuddha Buddha, his intelligence is not clear, and Vimukta Manina, he's not really liberated. He thinks he's liberated, but he's not. And there are so many people like that. So many big yogis and ganis and saying, I'm God and I'm liberated and so forth. And 
The best example of what I'm talking about, of people who think they're liberated, is the whole Sampradaya of Shankar. The whole Sampradaya. Jiva Goswami explains in Bhagavad Sandarbha, it's a figment of imagination. The whole idea of Shankar's merging with Brahman doesn't exist. It's a figment of imagination. What is taught there doesn't actually exist. There is a Sahaja Mukti, but not what he's talking about. And so many people are there thinking they're liberated by that. Yes? It seems like uh, there's this verse, what is it, Brahma Bhutta Prasanatha? There is a verse like that. Madhbhaktim Labhate Param. So it seems to me in that verse he's saying that you come to Brahman realization and then from there you go farther. That's right. So it seems like in the nectar of devotion, it's like you come up into Shantarasa. That's like the first platform of you know, real pure devotional service. And you have to go to that stage. No. Shantaras is a particular status. If you have Stahiba for Shantaras, then it's not going to change. And then you turn into a Dasya or a Sakha of Krishna, a uh, Gopi of Krishna. But, yes, you have to become liberated to yeah. enter into Krishna Leela. You have to become liberated to enter into Krishna Leela. Krishna Leela is post-liberated status. So our point is that in the context of bhakti, as I said earlier, we become liberated without a possibility of being distracted or waylaid short of Krishna bhakti, of Leela Seva. If we enter into liberation through jnana, still we'll have to factor some bhakti in, but it's not shuddha bhakti, sattviki bhakti. A particular manifestation of bhakti and sattvagun, generous to the ganis, gives them the kind of mukti they're interested in. But if you get mukti in that way, Brahman realization in that way, then you are not going to get lila seva in Krishna lila. But liberation is a byproduct of bhakti. So what it means is that verse is speaking about paro bhakti, para bhakti. Bhakti is two-sided in one sense in her glory. She reaches out to the most unqualified person and she extends to the highest position. So, bhakti reaches out to us, qualifies us with shraddha, we can begin to cultivate bhakti. But that doesn't mean that you're a, a parabhakta, a liberated bhakta. So in the culture of bhakti, then you'll pass through liberation, then you'll be a parabhakta. Then you can enter into the lila. Krishna says, vishate tadanantaram in the next verse. Then he enters into, into my lila. Therefore, Bhaktisanta Sarasri Thakur used to say, real bhajan is performed on the platform of Advaigyan Tattva. Real bhajan. Now, do kirtan. Because you're not qualified to do bhajan because you're not on the platform of Advaigyan Tattva. So if you simply imitate bhajan, which is a developed stage of devotional culture, sit down to do bhajan, but no, you should do kirtan. Shravanam kirtanam. Because Mind is disturbed, distracted, you have material desires, kirtan, shravan, kirtan, that will purify you. Cheto darpanam In the context of shravanam and kirtanam, done properly, you'll come to the advaigyan tattva, you can do real bhajan then. Shravanam and kirtan will go on still, but it will be of another nature. It will be of a more, let's say, focused nature, specific nature. So real bhajan is done on the platform of advaigyan tattva, it means non-dual consciousness. But are you living in non-dual consciousness? Or are you still being pushed and pulled by, I like this, I don't like that, this is hot, this is cold, and uh, living in that world? Not by a that's like a Brahman realization. I mean, it's like non-duality. That's right. 
So, in a sense, you're saying you have to come up to permanent realization. How you get there? Go, go, go beyond it. And how you get there? Right. That's the point. But if we try to go there by other means, it will not be conducive to devotion. Krishna doesn't teach, practice yoga, gyan, all these things, and become a liberated soul. Then do bhakti. Yes. I mean, the, the Kumaras, they were like liberated, and then, and then they, they kind of like went to Vaikuntha. Yeah, they were liberated. They were liberated. And they were Jivan Muktas. Jivan Muktas, right. Like Sukadev. They got bhakti. Krishna says, who's a jnani takes to bhakti very dear to me. He doesn't say jnani is very dear to me, but a jnani who takes to bhakti, oh, he's very dear to me. Hmm? Well, he says he's a jnani, also, he's everything. Yeah. Krishna is everything. So the point is that self-realization will develop in the context of bhakti in a healthy way for us. We won't get waylaid in, in Sayuja Mukti. Chattusan Kumar, Sukadev, they are examples in Bhagavatam for actually they are devotees. They're really not jnanis. They're actually devotees. But they come in the dress of jnanis to teach something about jnana and about bhakti and to show the superiority of bhakti. That's what they're teaching. They're not teaching we should become a jnani and then become a bhakti. They're teaching that bhakti is superior to jnana. That's what the whole leela of the Kumars is about. The whole leela of Sukadev hearing Bhagavatam, that's what it's all about. If we trace out the origin of Sukadev, but we don't find that he, he came from the conditioned life and became a jnani and then he became a bhakti. He came from Krishna leela. <laughs> anyway, it seems like, I, mean, when I think of jnana, I think like knowing about Krishna, reading the Bhagavatam. Well, that's, that's a that's, certain kind of jnana. That's, like that's Sambandha jnana. So there's Gyan in Bhakti. What is Gyan in Bhakti? Sambandha Gyan means who's Krishna, who am I, what's my relationship, all these things. But the knowledge of oneness with Brahman that the Gyanis are exclusively interested in, that is not favorable for Bhakti. Anything else? Just wondering, those in Videya Mukti, you were saying, they're in that position eternally, basically. Isn't there some way to preach to the somebody in that position that they can get security? Can't the holy name go there somehow, you know? Anything's possible. Unlikely, but generally when we talk about preaching in the Brahma Jyoti, we are talking about preaching to the Jivan Muktas. Examples, like I say, like Sukadev and Kumaras. Why do you think that Vishwanath Chakravati Thakur has compared it to being worse than hell? He said, it's better to be in hell than to be in Sarija Mukti. This is a very funny idea of bhakti. And people are spending lifetimes to try to get that sajjimukti. And Vishwanath says, we consider it like hell. In fact, you'd be better off in hell. So very much opposed to bhakti. Is very much, it is very much opposed, I should say, to bhakti. That desire, that position, very contrary. Srimad Bhagavad Gita ki jai.